Today on Blue 58, other than the guys actually on the field, nobody had a bigger effect on the 2021 Packers than Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur. So how did the general manager and head coach do this year? Let's discuss. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. I hope you are safe and warm and relatively free of snow wherever you happen to be today. I know we've got a few Southern Hemisphere listeners, not a lot, a few. Uh, I envy you a little bit today because it is snowing like crazy where I live today and throughout much of the United States, actually. It's a pretty monster storm going through the area uh, this week. In any case, snow or not, we get to look ahead and behind at the same time a little bit on this podcast. We're talking about Brian Gutekunst. We're talking about Matt LaFleur, the two guys that helped shape the Packers more than pretty much anybody else. And I think you have to be systematic in these evaluations every year. So that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the bottom line for each of these guys. What did they do in 2021 and how did it affect the Green Bay Packers? Were they net positive? Were they net negative? Uh, Did they make the Packers better? Did they make the Packers worse? And I think after sorting through this stuff, I'm a little bit more mixed on one of these guys than the other. Starting with Brian Gutekunst, I think the good is really obvious. There is a lot of it. That, in part, is what makes it obvious. But the most obvious good for Brian Gutekunst this year starts with his 2021 draft class. The free agents are and were spectacular. But I think the 2021 class is his first and biggest achievement of 2021. Eric Stokes looks like a very legitimate player. Uh, spent most of this year as the Packers, one of the Packers' two starting cornerbacks. A fortuitous injury to Kevin King early in the season, although maybe entirely predictable, uh, led to him getting into the, the lineup pretty quickly. And he never really turned back. Uh, there are some polished aspects of his game that still have a ways to go. Ball skills were an issue in college and remain so in his rookie season. But I don't think that you could ask much more out of Stokes this year. And getting a guy like him with his physical attributes at the late end of the first round and having him play and play as well as he did this season seems like an unqualified win. There's really no reason to to drill down super far on his performance this year. It was great. Uh, just about all you could ask. Uh, similarly for Josh Myers, um, just stepped right in, was a starter from from the get-go, and then injuries sort of derailed his season. That's not his fault, and it's certainly not Brian Gutekunst's fault. But um, they got really high-level performances out of him when he was healthy. Amari Rodgers, yes, some problems there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Royce Newman, uh, some problems there too. But coming on strong down the, down the stretch, and you got a 1,000 snaps out of a fourth-round pick as a rookie. That You can't complain about that too much. TJ Slayton, pretty solid. Uh, and then from there, it goes downhill a little bit, but you're into the late first round at that point. Shamar Jean Charles, not great, but fifth round corner. It's going to take a while anyway. Cole Van Lannan, same sort of deal. Isaiah McDuffie, solid special teamer. And Kylan Hill looked like he was going to be a steal, and then the ACL uh, derails his season, but he was off to a really good start there. So 2021 draft class, a really solid start. Also, some previous resources paying some bigger dividends. Rashawn Gary, in particular, the best example here, uh, becoming, if not a star, taking a big step towards being a star 
in 2021. Nine and a half sacks, a consistent uh, force getting after the cornerback, quarterback, just consistently good. Elton Jenkins, too, uh, really coming into his own this year in remarkable new ways, playing left tackle for the majority of the season, just continuing his high level of play there until, of course, it was derailed by an ACL injury. Uh, just the the list goes on. A lot of other people continuing to step up that Brian Gutekunst had a big hand in acquiring. Then, of course, you get to the free agents on Gutekunst. A lot of high-value signings here, but Devondre Campbell and Rasul Douglas are are the best examples. And here's where I want to spend spend a little bit of time. And I'm going to write about this at thepowersweep.com at some point in the relatively near future. But I want to talk about the idea of making your own luck. Because and I want to be careful how I say this so it doesn't come across negatively, but the Packers got lucky with Rasul Douglas and Devondre Campbell. Douglas in particular. Campbell playing as an all-pro was a surprise, but him playing well I don't think was that big a surprise. We talked about that when he was signed. Basically, he was a plus athlete version of, of Blake Martinez. He was going to bring a lot to the table, or he was not necessarily going to bring a ton to the table, but he wasn't going to take a lot off the table for you either. But playing in the Packers scheme, using him as they did, it, he was a great fit. And he played at an exceptionally high level this year, uh, had a lot of plays break his way, and ends up as an all-pro as a result. But Rasul Douglas, I think, is the perfect example of what I think we can safely characterize as making your own luck. Acquiring players in the NFL is like buying a lottery ticket, maybe more like a, a raffle ticket, actually. And in one of those raffles, where you look down at the bottom of the ticket and says, must be present to win. If you want to win, if you want things to break your way when you're acquiring players, guess what you got to do? Got to play, got to be present to win. You got to be in the game to get the big returns in free agency, in the draft, wherever. And Rasul Douglas is a perfect example of the Packers making their own luck. Because, if you remember correctly... He was actually not the only cornerback the Packers were in on about the time that he was acquired. Douglas came to the Packers from the Arizona Cardinals shortly after Jair Alexander was injured, but he was actually the second of two free agent cornerbacks the Packers had signed. Remember the name Quentin Dunbar. He was actually signed to the Packers practice squad uh, as a potential candidate for um, moving up to the roster at some point. And I actually, back at the time, thought I would prefer Dunbar to Douglas. Dunbar had a more decorated NFL career to that point. Douglas had been on and off NFL rosters, hanging around on practice squads, kind of a journeyman already in his still pretty young NFL career. I liked the guy that had shown that he could do it already. And as it turns out, that was incorrect. But the Packers were also in uh, at that time on uh, Stephon Gilmore, who ends up getting traded from the Patriots to the Panthers, the Panthers willing to take on his his relatively big contract at the time, uh, while the Packers were trying to wait it out until he was released, and he, they probably would have signed him at that point because it seemed like he was interested in signing with the Packers. But the point is, the Packers were in on three cornerbacks at the same time as they were trying to replace Jair Alexander. And that's important because not every signing, not every move is going to work out you got to take multiple swings sometimes to try to solve something. And the Packers, and Brian Gutekunst in particular, were doing that. They were trying to get their cornerback situation solved by running a bunch of cornerbacks through their tryout and practice and all that process. 
They signed Quentin Dunbar. They signed Rasul Douglas. They were trying to get Stefan Gilmore from New England to Green Bay. And what ended up happening? They had big on that lottery ticket. But the point is they were buying those tickets. They were in the game. They were trying to get these people to Green Bay. And what happened when they got one there? It worked out better than I think they could have imagined. Because let's be clear, they weren't signing Rasul Douglas well into the regular season thinking that he was going to be a Pro Bowl caliber player. Nothing in his history to this point would suggest that was going to be a realistic possibility. Nothing about how his roster trajectory had gone to that point would suggest that would be a possibility. And that's not a knock on Rasul Douglas. That's just a, a plain stating of the facts. It was it, it was not working out for him in a couple different destinations already uh, in his NFL career, quite a few already. In fact, the, the Eagles, the Texans, the Raiders, the Panthers, the Packers were the fifth team in a year that had taken a chance on Rasul Douglas. And look what happens. It worked out pretty darn well. Now, what, what, what actually happened was a bunch of high-variance plays broke Douglas's way, and he ends up putting up an incredible stat line as a result. You can't bank on him getting you know, half a dozen, almost half a dozen interceptions on a, in a given year and returning a couple of him for a couple of them for touchdowns. That's just not a sustainable practice. But the point is he played really well for the Packers and they took multiple swings to try to get to that point. That is where I think you can play praise Brian Gutekunst. On, on top of playing Rasul Douglas, he had a phenomenal season, but uh, Brian Gutekunst was a part of that too. He was in the conversation that got Douglas to Green Bay and it worked out really well for both sides. Now, the flip side is that there's a small pattern of Brian Gutekunst not taking swings or taking a bit of a misguided swing and it not working out. I think we can talk at this point about some of the bad stuff that went Gutekunst's way this year. I've got one real, I think, legitimate quarrel with Gutekunst and then one that's really just quibbling, okay? Omari Rogers specifically, and the Packers wide receivers in general, I think are a problem for Brian Gutekunst. If you're of the mindset that the Packers wide receiver situation has been okay and Aaron Rodgers has had plenty of weapons, hear me out. Don't tune out. That's not what I'm saying. The Packers have for too long failed to invest at wide receiver. And it's going to bite them here in the near future, and it bit them already, I think, in the playoffs. The Packers' cupboard is bare at wide receiver. They've got very little in the way of guys coming back for 2022 that they don't have to resign right now. Devontae Adams, a free agent. MVS, a free agent. Equinemius St. Brown, a free agent. The list goes on and on and on. They've got to restock now, and it's because they've done very little backfilling over the years. I've harped on this again and again and again over the past few seasons, but there are a few positions on your roster that you ought to be taking prospects each and every year, trying to fill out that roster just to see what happens. Because you need a lot of bodies, and you need a lot of bodies at wide receiver. And since 2018, the Packers have added one using significant draft resources, using any draft resources, and that's Amari Rodgers. And I think we saw the consequences of that approach in the playoffs. In addition to that backfill sort of take that I've had for a long time, I've also been saying for years that the Packers need another receiver who can win one-on-one stuff. Alan Lazard is great. You will find few bigger Alan Lazard fans out there 
than me. But he needs to be in a very specific situation to be able to succeed, to play at the level where he's capable of playing. Same kind of goes for Equinemius St. Brown. The same kind of goes at this point in his career for a Randall Cobb. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is capable of winning one-on-ones because of his tremendous speed. And look what happened in the playoffs against the 49ers. MVS was out, and San Francisco was able to basically cripple the Packers' deep passing attack by bracketing Devontae Adams, among other things, but still. Another wide receiver with some deep speed, capable of winning one-on-one against a defensive back, just making him pay through his physical attributes would have helped there. And that player is not Amari Rodgers. And we talked about that back in the spring. Amari Rodgers was a weird tendency breaker for Brian Gutekunst. He's not particularly big. We know Brian Gutekunst loves big wide receivers. And he's not particularly athletic. We know that Brian Gutekunst loves athletic prospects almost more than anything. And when he started showing the yips on punt returns, you start having the office space conversation with Amari Rodgers. What is it you would say that you do here? Because you're not a factor on offense because you don't fit what the Packers like to do with their receivers. You're not explosive enough that they can really find a thing for you to do. And you don't do a good job at the one thing that you're supposed to be good at. What do you do here? And that's where you kind of have to turn it around to Brian Gutekunst and say, what are you doing? Because you can you can get mad at Amari Rogers, sure, but at a certain point, you have to turn it back around to the person who's putting him in that situation and say, why? What are you doing? Why are you, what are you expecting out of this guy? It's not working out. Why did you put him in this situation and think that it was going to work out? Now, to be fair to Gutekunst, uh, Rogers had a pretty significant successful career at Clemson returning puns. It just appears to have all come apart in the NFL and it may yet reverse course, but why are you rolling the dice on a guy who doesn't fit your very well-established tendencies at receiver when there was a bunch of those kind of guys available in the draft over the previous couple of years, including 2021? just doesn't make a lot of sense. The other bad thing, and this, like, like I said, is quibbling, but it's something that I'm going to be thinking about for a long, long time. Josh Myers over Creed Humphreys. Now, I don't do a lot of offensive line scouting, but Creed Humphreys seemed like a slam dunk Green Bay Packers draft pick in the 2021 NFL draft. A big, athletic, versatile center, capable of playing multiple interior positions. But the Packers went with Josh Myers at 62 instead of Humphrey. Myers, of course, a decorated center at Ohio State, certainly no slouch in his own right, but not as athletic as Humphrey is and didn't necessarily have the same level of versatility that Humphrey does either. Now, both of them ended up having really good rookie years. Creed Humphrey is one of the most decorated rookie linemen, if you talk to pro football focus, one of the best they've ever seen. Myers, no slouch in his own right. We lose some of the perspective there because he got hurt and we didn't get to see his full rookie season. But I'm just going to be wondering forever what would have happened if those things were switched up with the Packers. Why did the Packers go with, with Myers over Humphreys? Humphrey, excuse me. Uh, just a question I'm always going to have. I think both teams have reason to be happy with their picks, but Humphrey was really good. Why Myers over him? 
Just interesting. Overall, for Gutekunst, I think he was really good in 2021. Things didn't work out, but I have a hard time laying much of the blame at the feet of Brian Gutekunst. I said in one of the post-game deals for the divisional round that if you really wanted to get mad at Brian Gutekunst, you could talk about, oh, how they could have used another receiver in the playoffs instead of, you know, a quarterback who's standing on the sideline. That is still true. But the fact of the matter is there's always moves that could have gone better. And broadly, I don't think you can fault him for most of the moves that he did make in 2021. So Brian Gutekunst gets a good grade from me this season. What about Matt LaFleur? It's going to sound more negative here than I think it probably will, but I have a mixed opinion of Lafleur's 2021. And that I think because is because the things I think he did well are kind of nebulous while the things he didn't do well are pretty concrete. The good things, like I said, are, are pretty nebulous and hard to pin down. In a year where the Packers faced a lot of injury adversity, a lot of uncertainty in, in their team because of you know people getting hurt, having all pros unavailable, stuff like that. The Packers had a lot of unity as a team. They had continuity from week to week in their offensive performance, even if it wasn't what we saw in 2020. They were still solid week in and week out. They were producing similar ways week in and week out. And generally, he ran a a positive program amidst a lot of, I think, external attention that was pretty negative in 2021. Uh, Certainly none of it generated generated by him, but uh, he managed to keep things positive. And I think it, the the season-ending pressure for, for Matt LaFleur after the divisional round loss um, shows basically why that is. Every negative thing that a reporter asked him about, he, his first response was, that's on me. He takes ownership of everything that goes on in his program, and I think that's commendable. Even if it isn't always true, I think it's it's worth pointing out that he's willing to take blame for things not going the way they should in his program, because ultimately he is responsible for everything that goes on in his program. So a lot of good things fall into those categories. Hard to pull out specifics, but overall, a lot of good things there. But some negatives too. You start thinking back over the course of the year, when did things not go well for the Packers? Three games really come to mind. Week one, the Chiefs game, and the divisional round. And I think you can tie a lot of those things to Matt LaFleur. Week one, I don't know how that kind of performance of the year, or that kind of performance in the first game of the year doesn't reflect poorly on you as a coach. Right? Week one, you've got the entire offseason. You can put in whatever plays you want, whatever schemes you want, and there shouldn't be a whole lot of surprise from the other team in terms of what they're going to do to try to slow you down because they shouldn't know what's coming and you're this offensive wonderkind of a head coach, you should be able to figure out a way to be unpredictable on offense. Instead, what happened in week one? The Saints come out in a relatively simple cover two shell, and the Packers just have no idea what to do to solve it. They did ultimately solve it down the stretch this year, I think. They played better against that kind of defense in the future. But how do you not have a little bit of a adjustment downward on LaFleur coming out that way in week one. Not just that it could happen in a given game because, look, everybody has bad games, but just coming out utterly flat and emotionless in the first game of the season. Sure, some unusual circumstances. Moving the game to Jacksonville because of a hurricane doesn't probably help your your workflow heading into week one, but it shouldn't look that bad in the first game of the year. The Chiefs game. I think you got to put it on Matt LaFleur, the decision coming out 
in basically the Aaron Rodgers game plan and asking Jordan Love, hey, play like a three-time MVP at that time. At that time. Soon to be four-time MVP, probably. That's a big coaching screw-up. And again, the Chiefs solved the Packers game plan pretty simply. What'd they do? They brought the house after Jordan Love. And the Packers were very slow to respond. Ultimately, they did respond. But it was too little too late. And that was a very winnable game that went by the boards, probably because of some coaching decisions by Matt LaFleur. And then in the divisional round, you've got a big question mark right out of the gate, starting Billy Turner at left tackle and leaving Dennis Kelly at right tackle against an elite pass-rushing defense. That's a big problem. And one that I think that Matt LaFleur has really never adequately explained. Why Billy Turner instead of Yash Nyman, who did a fine enough job against Nick Bosa and company the first time around. Why Billy Turner at left tackle? I can understand putting him at right tackle. Why the left side, a place he hasn't played in a year? It seems like the Packers were expecting David Bakhtiari there and then panicked when Bakhtiari was not available. That's a problem. The game plan, too. We have talked about, you know, numerous issues with the way the Packers played in the divisional round, but the Packers seem to go away from a lot of the things that they did well throughout the regular season. They were a lot more static in this game. Less movement, less motion, uh, less formational diversity. It was kind of the resurfacing of my old Matt LaFleur microchip theory. We've talked for years now about Matt LaFleur's offense being this this precision instrument, lots of moving parts, lots of interconnected things building on top of each other. And when it's great, it's this marvel of football machinery moving all different directions, going a thousand miles an hour, and it's phenomenal to watch. But you introduce a grain of sand to the microchip and it's compromised and it all comes crumbling apart. And for the most part, I think that was not the case for the Packers in 2021. They were able to withstand a lot of grains of sand in the microchip. But against the 49ers, suddenly they face a couple bumps in the road, a fumble from Mercedes Lewis, A.J. Dillon goes down, and it feels like they're completely out of ideas. They had one good drive in the second half where they just slammed Aaron Jones into the offensive line again and again and again, mixed in a couple throws in there. But um, it, it... was generally speaking a very underwhelming offensive performance and it seemed like a game plan that was pretty flawed sure there's the Aaron Rodgers factor in there he did not play well it seemed to be changing to things that were more his style than Lafleur's style but I think you can have real concerns about the game plan a lot of spread stuff not a lot of under center stuff it was concerning and on the biggest stage, I think it has to change your perception of, of Matt LaFleur a little bit. As a result, looking to the bottom line, I would struggle with Matt LaFleur for coach of the year. He probably wouldn't have been my pick if I was voting. The good has been real good, but the good is more long-term stuff too. The bad reflects, I think, pretty poorly on his coaching performance this year. Two pretty big black marks on his resume in the regular season, both pretty heavily tied to coaching decisions. 
or just coaching in general. Clearly, Matt LaFleur has built something really good in Green Bay, but there were some big question marks this year too, and I don't think you can entirely let him off the hook for that. So I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you listening in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy hearing it. That's going to help us continue to grow the show, getting more people involved in this conversation that you and I and everybody else are having about the Green Bay Packers and in turn, helping all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. You'll see you next time on Blue 58.